Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Thursday, December 30th, and this is part one of my 2022 forecast. In the past, uh, I've made forecasts in the past, uh, at the beginning of the year. This is a trend you're going to see. You're going to see a lot of people making forecasts. Kind of takes you back uh, to memory of what uh, Yogi Berra, the famous Yankees catcher, who was uh, famous for making various quips. Um, he said, it's hard, hard to make predictions. It's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. But I think uh, some of the things that I'm going to talk about today are just continuations of what we're already seeing in 2021. Um, that does have a risk of recency bias, but as it applies to energy, I don't really see too many things coming on the horizon with the exception of possibly a worldwide recession, which I don't think anybody's really forecasting uh, for the first part of the year uh, to derail what I think is gonna happen in energy and specifically in oil markets. So uh, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, again, nothing that you hear or see here is to be taken as investment advice. This is for informational purposes only. I am not a registered investment advisor. I am not here to give you financial advice. I'm just a guy on the internet. Please do your own due diligence. These are my own opinions and should be taken uh, as such. So one of the things that I think, uh, the themes that we talked about last year that kind of emerged and became apparent and something that I've been thinking about other, other people have been thinking about has gained traction throughout 2021 and I think is going to continue to uh, be uh, part of the general narrative for most people is the energy crisis that's emerging that will continue. Um, obviously, you know, we've seen recently what's happened in Europe uh, with surging gas prices uh, to the equivalent of somewhere around $200, $250 a barrel in energy equivalent. We've seen the record electricity prices. And uh, although this has pulled back recently because it's gotten a bit warmer in Europe uh, over the last uh, week or so, but this is kind of indicative of what, you know, was forecasted by people that were pretty smart, you know, that had thought well thought out ideas about uh, energy, uh, that uh, you cannot have an energy transition um, willed by politicians and environmental activists. Um, these things, when they do occur, take decades based on previous energy transitions. And I think policymakers decided that they were going to mandate this, and they didn't give any thought about how it was gonna happen or the technologies that they were using. The first blurb here, you know, I said in this slide, poor policy make, making and recency bias, always thinking cheap gas would be available on the spot market uh, and from Russia, by the way, are already leading to an emerging energy crisis in Europe. Um, I think this is not just in Europe. I mean, a lot of people uh, are relying on natural gas now. And, it, you know, with the exception of the United States, uh, and some other areas, like in North Africa, the, the, you know, in Russia, the gas reserves are not there. So you're you're wedded to contracts, pipelines, LNG carriers, the spot market. And gas was so cheap for so long 
I think people thought and policymakers, especially in Europe, thought, well, we can have this energy transition and we can always have natural gas backup. It'll always be available. And we uh, that's just a you know typical recency bias. You know, today will be like, you know, today will be like yesterday because yesterday was like the day before. I mean, it's you know, and tomorrow will be like today. It's not how things work. Um, so this crisis, uh, energy crisis in Europe, for example, is being exacerbated by more bad policy prescriptions, in my view. Germany closing its nukes, Belgium talking about doing it, ongoing dispute with Russia, who is the uh, primary supplier of natural gas to Europe over, you know, eastern Ukraine. You know, this has more in-depth policy and geopolitical discussions more than I want to have, but that's suffice to say, it's, you know, and that's leading to a delay on starting the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Um, it's ridiculous that you would have soaring natural gas prices and you wouldn't do everything you could to alleviate that. So this, uh, you know, good luck with that policy. And then again, you know, another bad policy decisions that were made around failure to take advantage of domestic natural gas resources. There are tremendous shale resources in both the UK and in France, and the politicians in both countries have bent the knee to a small group of environmental activists um, when they could have pursued, you know, developing these in a, in a, in a environmentally friendly way and supplied some of their own gas. So they've chosen not to do that. And now they're reaping the whirlwind. Um, so the answer is do more renewables is the answer is electric prices, electricity prices skyrocket. Um, most Western governments are moving to net zero policies, which will continue to dent the supply of fossil fuels. So, you know, this is going to exacerbate uh, as we go through this decade, I believe there's going to be energy shortages. You're already seeing many of the manufacturers in Europe. Uh, there's been quite a few, as I've reported in previous weekly updates about shutdowns of zinc smelters and fertilizer plants and all kinds of different uh, industry. And in Germany, uh, the industrial sector is already complaining to the government about the rise in um, power prices and how it's affecting their ability to be competitive. So. Uh, you're seeing this in Europe right now, but I suspect that, you know, across the Western Western governments, uh, Western OECD uh, countries, you're going to see more of this because they have wedded themselves to this net zero policy and demonized fossil fuels. So we have this constriction of supply. Um, we have, you know, small activist funds uh, getting, getting on the, uh, doing proxy fights with companies like Exxon to get them to change from their core business, which is the extraction and production, refining and marketing of oil and gas. And, uh, you know, they have got the ear of very large um, money managers like BlackRock. And um, these people are voting along with them and forcing change at a lot of the uh, national or a lot of the uh, multinational oil companies. So you're seeing this incremental ratcheting down and making it more difficult to operate, more costly to operate. Uh, for these oil and gas companies, and that's necessarily going to lead to uh, supply constriction. Um, not to mention the fact that the multi-year deficit in spending on new production, the, the finding of new reserves, exploration, and production, 
there's been a big gap in spending. And because, as I've said uh, many times, the, um, the necessity to continue to invest in new production in an extractive industry, which declines over time, is a necessity. And it certainly has not happened. You know, uh, we're just seeing news, news item after news item that is, is leading to the fact that uh, we are going to be undersupplied with hydrocarbons in the near future. This is going to lead to uh, extremely high prices. Uh, it's going to lead to all kinds of knock-on effects, which I'm not going to go into. I'll, I will go into agriculture in a subsequent video. But in industry, in political and social uh, upheaval, um, it's going to lead to a lot of problems that I can't even foresee right now. Um, the fact of the matter remains that if you look at the uh, energy usage of the world, uh, it continues to grow in the emerging markets, and uh, it's mostly fossil fuels. And we cannot just go and change everything in 10 years because environmental activists and, you know, slippery politicians have decided that this is what they want to do in 10 years. It simply won't happen. Yet, if they continue to uh, do these destructive policies are going to force up the cost of energy. Um, so I think that energy will continue to be a place to invest and speculate. Um, eventually, hopefully, uh, we will have rational policymakers come along that will fix this. But usually you have to go through a tremendous amount of pain before you get to the solution, right? You have to try everything else first until you get to the solution. So, you know, declining supply, running into increasing demand. And as I've said before, don't forget natural decline. You know, Exxon did a presentation a couple of years ago where they estimated worldwide declines to be 6% a year. Uh, that's overall. So on 100 million barrel per day of worldwide production capacity, which probably you know, let's just say that as the, you know, plus or minus where we're at right now, depending on where we are with the uh, uh, demand um, getting back to normal. 6% means you have to find and bring online 6 million barrels of per day of new production every year just to stay, you know, with your head above water to meet demand, to overcome the depletion that naturally takes place in oil and gas fields. Uh, not to mention that the historical narrative of the last 40 years of an incremental one to one and a half percent increase in demand every year at 100 million barrels, you're having to add a million to a million and a half barrels of per day of new production uh, every year. Uh, that's compounding on itself uh, based on emerging market and developing market uh, demand. So you're looking at having to find and develop bring online 7 million barrels per day of new production every year. And we simply have not invested enough money. So we are heading to a brick wall. I don't know if it's next year, but you can see already uh, today, as I make this video, Brent is knocking on the door of $80 a barrel and uh, WTI is like 76 or something like that. These are, uh, you know, you're up tremendously from last year. So the trend seems to be up. I, I, I don't know where we go. Uh, there's been projections, uh, Goring and Rosenzweig, for example, in the recent uh, commentary has suggested based on their analysis that in the second half of 2022, uh, because they believe that um, OPEC cannot, will not meet its call uh, on, new on new production and uh, uh, more oil, 
that the world could get into a situation where the world's demand as it normalizes, which I'll get into in the next slide, as it normalizes and continues to grow, uh, will exceed the pumping capacity of the world. If you get in a situation like that, price will ration. And is that $150 a barrel? Is that $200 a barrel? I can't forecast that. So for investment and speculating purposes, what's the theme for next year? Cash is king. Uh, the disease that cannot be mentioned, current new variant, appears to be making uh, the disease endemic. Um, we're seeing the data now come in. Uh, you can believe what you want. The data is what it is. You can see many governments, especially in the U.S., it's kind of uh, amusing to watch them now pretend that they didn't say what they said before or walk this thing back uh, as they get, they're getting rug pulled uh, by this um, basically what amounts to, for many people, a head cold. So uh, hopefully that will continue, but if it does, uh, this should lead to normalization of demand. And as I've noted in previous videos that I've made recently, China and India are already above pre-pandemic um, demand levels. Uh, so they are already exceeding the levels of demand that happened pre-pandemic. This is what you expect, right? The emerging markets are going to continue to develop. You know, I've talked about the uh, difference in energy requirements or demand between the developed world and the developing world. It's a tremendous gap. And as these people become wealthier, their demand for energy is going to, is con going to continue to increase. And as we constrict supply, as we don't invest enough, this is going to create a problem. So um, one of the things I wanted to note here, and I think is something that a lot of people may be still missing, is that even at current oil prices, many companies are exhibiting double digit cash flow yields, okay? Um, I can show you company after company that basically went into austerity mode. They didn't do any new drilling. Um, Sandridge is a perfect example. They're just harvesting, blowing down production spending just enough to maintain their production, to keep the wells running, keep everything going. And they're now generating tremendous amounts of cash flow, right? Uh, especially a lot of the Canadian juniors, even some of your big cap companies like Suncor and CNQ. I mean, these things are turning into cash flow machines. Oxy, um, you know, some of these companies have a lot of debt like Oxy, but there's a lot of, there's, if you just look at the cash flows and listen to what the management say, um, you know, what they're going to do with that cash flow. Uh, it's, it's tremendous. We see companies, there are certain companies that we have seen that uh, some of the Canadian EMP smaller, uh, they have 25% or more free cash flow yields at current oil prices, and we expect oil prices to go higher. So, uh, you know, this is tremendous. So what does that mean? Well, based on what managements have been communicating for the last several quarters, you know, the drill baby drill era is over with. As I said, there's many companies that uh, basically froze. They're not uh, really froze out doing any new production, drilling new wells, just doing maintenance uh, capex, just doing uh, incremental, uh, you know, well workovers, things like that to keep the production as high as they could, without uh, spending you know millions of dollars and going into debt to uh, drill new wells. Um, Based on management's communications, what I've been reading in a lot of their communications and, and, and uh, conference calls, debt paydowns are number one, and then share buybacks and dividend increases. That's what we've been told by company after company after company, and they're executing, right? Um, companies are paying down debt. 
Uh, I have a company in a portfolio that uh, has focused on debt pay downs. There's a it's a it's a Canadian operator, and it could quite conceivably cash flow a billion dollars next year. Okay, uh, and the market cap is you know maybe double that I think. So you know there's another company that I think will cash flow close to its current market cap, and people are starting to recognize these stories now. And I think that uh, you know, as long as the oil price stays at you know seventy dollars or above, these things are ATMs. They're just going to continue to cash flow. And I think that um, after the first of the year, um, people are going to start analysts. Uh, the investing community is going to start realizing what's happening with these companies. And I think you're going to see a sentiment change uh, towards them as uh, cash flow, dividends, uh, and share buybacks become a uh, you know a incentive for people to rotate into these names. And I think that's going to happen. Um, I, th I think that, uh, you know, even your big cat companies are doubles from here at current oil prices, uh, many of them, just based on some of the cash flow yields. So um, basically my forecast uh, for basically next year is I expect oil prices to move higher throughout 2022 there's an increasing chance that OPEC is not able to meet its call for production. Um, I think that we've seen that, and I've talked about that several times over the last few months, whereas OPEC has increased its quotas by 400,000 barrels per day um, each and every month since August. And I think it goes into February or March of next year. We see many uh, countries, Nigeria, um, Angola, several other countries, uh, countries unable to meet their quotas, right? So they're just leaving money on the table. No, they are unable to increase production. Why? Because natural declines have, you know, uh, exact has have uh, made themselves known and have not been compensated for by increased spending. So um, again, uh, we're seeing that. And I think that is going to possibly be the big story of 2022. The view that, you know, as it starts to, the data starts to come in, as prices start keep slowly but surely moving higher as demand comes back um, and things uh, normalize and get back uh, as, as I believe they will uh, if this, if we're, if we maintain the current trend on the variant, um, it's going to become apparent that OPEC can't meet the call for new production. And then you could forget about non-OPEC because there simply hasn't been enough investment. And that leads me to the other theme that I'm getting more and more excited about for next year. Uh, oil field services are quietly rebounding. Um, if you would look over here on the left, this is a chart that I saw, two charts, and I'll explain them. Basically, you have the total spending um, in billions of dollars on the right, and this is the percentage change, year over year CapEx change. You saw in 2020 during the, um, what do you call it, uh, pandemic, you know, we had a 27% drop in um, oil field spending. You see back here in the heyday of 2012, 2013, you know, we saw a, um, uh, you know, where we were up around 500, 600 billion dollars a year. We're, we're half that now. We've been, you know, basically down at these levels for the last five, six years. You see these we're not in this era over here where we were increasing production, you know, and, the, and now we're, you know, we're living off the, the reserves and production that was, you know, 
paid for back here. And you just see multi-years, these shale collapses. And then of course, last year, but what you see is, you know, in 2021, an estimated 9% increase in uh, upstream CapEx, and then a forecast of 13% uh, CapEx increase uh, for 2022. And um, this is still, according to JP Morgan's estimates, 40 to 70% below where it could be given the prevailing oil price. So here's your oil price here, and here is uh, CapEx that you would expect to see. Uh, this suggests that the upstream continues to be starved of capital. So you, you should be uh, along here, uh, but you are down here. So um, we, we've been talking about this for uh, the last year, at least. Um, and this is going to, you know, I think, be one of the major drivers of an increasing oil price in the next couple of years. However, you know, we have several companies in the portfolio that have underperformed. They're down massively. We just got done going through one of the biggest oil field services depressions, probably the biggest oil field service depression in the history of the oil and gas industry. And so... We have found the survivors, the companies are, I'm not saying booming, but they are coming back, okay? And quietly coming back. Um, I'm staying away from the offshore rig operators. I just don't have enough confidence that they are, um, why, why try to pick the, the right one? I'm not saying that they won't do well, but uh, there still needs to be a lot more retirements that need to happen and drill ships and rigs that I think need to happen to get day rates up. We're not seeing that. But what I'm focusing on is the things that these rigs need or that the oil companies need to do the offshore oil uh, exploration and production. So I'm focusing on geoscience, right? Uh, the company in the portfolio that I am uh, that I have is at like you know multi-year lows, and yet if you look at the actual business, um, it is on the upswing. They're seeing increased orders activity uh, sequentially and year over year, double digit, and cautiously optimistic about the future. Offshore supply boats, um, you know that industry has been completely decimated. Uh, that. That's, that's slowly but surely coming back. One of the companies I have in the portfolio uh, is I consider the industry leader and is already seeing shortages of certain classes of boats in certain areas around the world, specifically offshore West Africa. They are reactivating vessels and um, you know it, they expect to have all of their, their laid up vessels either uh, scrapped or reactivated by the end of 2022. So we are seeing the recovery. You know, equipment and service providers, there's a company in the portfolio that is one of the world leaders in various services and equipment for the drilling of offshore. Uh, they're saying the same thing. They're cash flow positive and earnings positive. They're at multi-year lows. And so if you see, as I say, that the upswing in spending is happening, which it has to, uh, and I think in a rising oil environment, oil price environment, you're going to see increased cash flows and inevitably you're going to see an appetite for having to go out and replace reserves at a minimum. I'm not saying you're going to get back to the boom times. I'm not saying you're going to have years like this, but you know, there's no way to tell. If we get to $100, $120, $150 a barrel, I mean, all these stocks are going to soar uh, on uh, anticipation. But I think that um, the managements that I am uh, 
listening to and following and the portfolio companies, they haven't really moved yet, but the businesses appear to have turned the corner. Now, obviously, uh, uh, you know, like I said, all the portfolio service companies are cash flowing positive. I think a couple of them actually have, one of them has actual earnings, but cash flow is what we're worried about. Um, debts are manageable, refinancings have taken place. This industry has been decimated. The dross, the weak and sick, the over-indebted have been driven out of business, bankrupted, restructured, merged. Uh, so when this thing does, when the, when, the, when the industry does turn, which I believe it is now, the increased dollars are going to go to uh, fewer operators. So I think that gives you torque and leverage to a rising oil price. So I think this is why I'm very, um, no one's talking about oil field services. No one's talking about the companies I'm talking about. But I think that if you have patience, I'm not saying it's going to happen in the first half. I think you see a gradual quarter over quarter uh, improvement. That's what a lot of these uh, managements are seeing, forecasting. They're seeing more interest, more inquiries. And uh, I think as the oil price moves higher, uh, these companies are going to shift from you know, paying down debt as we go through that stage and start focusing on increasing um, reserves and production that's in, that will be in decline. So. Uh, this is uh, where I think things are going with energy, um, natural gas. Uh, you know, it seems like uh, this is a very volatile market. I don't necessarily have an opinion on it. I think you just stick with these operators uh, offshore, and I think that you know it's such a beaten down business. And I think when it when it does come back, which is inevitable, and you might have to wait to the second half of 2022 or early 2023 to see it. But um, I think that starting to accumulate shares now is how we do this. You know, it's funny, uh, I get a lot of, I had a lot of subscriptions increase in the last part of the year. And I'll talk more about this when I talk about uranium uh, in a subsequent uh, 2022 forecast video. But a lot of people chase the shiny object. No one wanted to talk about uranium companies two or three years ago when we were buying Paladin at 12 cents. I remember having a call with Trader Ferg I mean, this is maybe two years ago and we were, you know, on the call, I was actually buying shares in Australia of Paladin for like 12 cents a share, you know, so no one cared about it. No one was talking about it. It was the same small group of fin twit people. And now you see, you know, where, where uranium stocks have went. So yet you have a lot of people now coming into the market. So the 10 times returns are not necessarily from this point in uranium. How you get 10 times, 20 times returns is buying these industries and having a thesis and putting together a process where these companies, uh, talking about offshore services now, uh, are going to um, turn and they're at such depressed prices, the time to buy them is now. If you wait until everybody in the in in finance acknowledges or everybody on Wall Street acknowledges that the companies have turned, these stocks have, will have already moved two, three, five times. So that's my um, recommendation. Uh, there's no reason to go all nuts into these things. I just been picking away at some of these companies in the portfolio myself, my personal portfolio. And I feel very confident as I see, as I said before, you know, uh, spending's increasing. That's going to continue to increase. And I think if the oil price accelerates closer to 100, goes over $100 a barrel, you're going to see uh, more companies start uh, improving uh, projects and this thing's going to ramp up. All right, guys, uh, that's it for part one of my 2022 uh, forecast. Like I said, no one can know the future. 
we just try to take the facts as best that we can, the information that we have, and then try to sit and, and noodle through what we think the most uh, highest probabilities are. Uh, that's all we're trying to do here. What's the highest probability based on the information we have now? Obviously, if things change and information can change, then we have to possibly change our thesis. What's at risk? Well, we could have a worldwide recession, could force oil demand down, um, and then the price would go down. We could have you know, some kind of flare up with a war in Ukraine with Russia and the EU or something crazy like that. Uh, China could go after Taiwan. I mean, all these things are unknowables. They are you know, very low probability events, but would have high impact to uh, possibly to our thesis. But this is unknowable. We have to go with what's the highest probability. And the highest probability is that uh, things will continue to improve in the oil industry. Uh, this business is not going away for decades and the underinvestment and then the added uh, rocket fuel of governments and uh, society as a whole demonizing fossil fuels is just going to lead to undersupply uh, when demand cannot be um, de demand cannot be replaced by anything legitimate. So uh, that's it uh, for this particular video. Thanks for watching, and we'll talk to you soon.